2: I'm Deirdre Boza and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning, welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza in San Francisco with John Fort in New York. Carl Quintanilla, how's the morning off? Today, a ton of earnings movers to get to. Mark Benioff is alone at the helm of Salesforce once again. Investors warming up to Snowflake, plus Okta and Splunk get a boost, then FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried and Meta's Mark Zuckerberg speaking at the New York Times Dealbook conference. We have all the highlights and finally Cloud Week continues. We are joined by the CEOs of Microsoft, Azure, VMware and Pure Storage. John, big show ahead.
3: Indeed, and let's kick it off with Salesforce, that enterprise giant falling this morning despite beating on the top and bottom lines for the third quarter. After the announcement that co-CEO Brett Taylor is going to leave the company at the end of January after just being promoted exactly a year ago, Taylor said in a statement the move was to get back to his, quote, entrepreneurial roots. Co-CEO and founder Mark Benioff is going to retake the full reins at that point. Here's what Benioff told Jim Cramer on Mad Money last night.
4: It's a gut punch. And... Um you know, running a company, and I've been doing this now for 25 years, you look for the best people in the world to bring them in. And um, the hardest part is when they uh, tell you that they want to uh, want to leave. And um, that's uh, where we are with Brett. Brett's going to be leaving at the end of the year.
3: Change and earnings. Let's bring in our own Frank Holland. Frank, part of this story has to be the remaining performance obligations over there at right. Salesforce indicating a slowdown in 2023. Part of this whole story that we're seeing play out in enterprise overall, where for every company, it's a little bit different, but pockets of weakness or at least question about how much demand there is going to be in an uncertain economy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think demand's a question across the board when it comes to cloud. We saw uh, Uh, Salesforce issue, uh, lower than expected, RPO. Again, that's often seen as an insight into demand going forward. Um, and then on top of that, um, Mark Benioff on the call and even in his discussion with Kramer, he really laid out there's a lot of headwinds. Uh, according to him, CEOs across all industries they're slowing down, maybe even stopping their spend when it comes to IT and marketing. Something that he found very concerned. And even when he spoke to Kramer, he mentioned that he's been through some uh, economic crises before, he's been through some economic slowdowns before, but this whole currency thing basically blindsided him. He said last year we were setting out our guidance, we had no idea that the dollar would make those moves to the upside against the yen and the euro, and he flat admitted that he was a bit stumped by it.
2: Yeah. So the results, the quarterly results and outlook is one thing. But, you know, the bigger story, of course, was Brett Taylor. He's been there for six years plus. And really, Frank, this is a guy that was seen as sort of an agent of change, someone who is going to push for organic growth and investment, whereas Benioff's style over the year has been big acquisitions, which has really diluted shareholders. So with Taylor not there, how much of this is investor concerned that Benioff won't have that change agent anymore? Who else there at Salesforce can kind of play that role?
1: Well, just to be clear, the shock was like for everybody across the board. Dan Ives was on uh, Closing Bill Overtime last night, but he believed that the decline in the stock was simply related to Brett Taylor leaving. I personally was at Dreamforce just a few months ago out in San Francisco, and Brett Taylor really seemed integrated into the culture of Salesforce and that whole community. What they do out there is very unique and he definitely seemed to be a part of it. He had a good rapport with investors, a good rapport with analysts, and just a good rapport with everybody there. I had a chance to speak with him a little bit there, um, and he was just trying to take it all in. You could tell he was trying to take it all in and just enjoy that first-in-person dream force. So if we're looking forward, who is that change, agent? Great question. Um, Brett Taylor said he wanted to get back to his entrepreneurial roots. This is speculation. I don't have insight, but they have someone else, uh, the CEO of a uh, excuse me, of their uh, service cloud, Clara Shai, who has a very similar background to Brett Taylor. She's also a founder of Hearsay Systems, now involved uh, part of Salesforce. So that could be somebody he could turn to with very similar background and just that similar entrepreneurial background that Brett Taylor has.
3: Um, speaking of Brett Taylor spoke with him just about a year ago around the time leading up to Dreamforce 21 which was largely remote. He talked about the importance of values and why he joined Salesforce in the first place. Take a listen.
4: Reached out and you know made this case, but it was just the wrong timing. You know, we had just raised our series B, the sky is the limit and um, Mark, uh, as if you've ever met him, is a really charming salesperson and convinced us, and, and obviously the, the price tag was, was uh, you know, motivational as well.
3: And that's when he sold Quip <laughs> to Salesforce in the first place, saying, yeah, the price tag was motivational, but it was really Benioff leading with this talk about uh, values. Clearly, Brett wants to go back to the entrepreneurial part, and hey, when the economy is shaky, If you got some money, that's a good time to start something. It's also a good time to incubate things within large companies, Frank. So um, maybe Benioff ends up leaning on the folks over at Slack. Clara, as you said, to help do that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a possibility. But I mean, I think something a lot of analysts and people have spoken to me about the fact that they also have integrated Slack. So that's not an entrepreneurial opportunity, but it's certainly a challenge that if Brett Taylor was looking for a challenge, he could have taken on inside of Salesforce. And then on top of that, something else that's a bit confusing about this report, RPO was was disappointing, but they actually raised their EPS guidance. So there's some questions about demand, where the money's coming. Are deals just simply taking longer to close or are they just not coming? So a lot of questions. And one more thing about Brett Taylor, uh, you know, obviously co-CEO of Salesforce, but also uh, on the Twitter board. So he's somebody who's, you know, a pretty prominent person in the world of tech himself. But Mark Benioff, it's like a a planet with its own gravity. So (laughs) that might have been another motivation. I mean, if you're around Mark Benioff, I think all of us have been. He just, people just are attracted to him. He just has a spotlight on him pretty much everywhere he goes.
2: He is a force of nature and was on the Twitter board. Taylor, uh, John, let me throw something out to you. Taylor wants to return to his entrepreneurial roots. He was chair of Twitter. He defeated Elon Musk. Maybe he won his respect too. Could it be possible that maybe he goes to Twitter? Is that a crazy idea?
1: Yes, that's crazy. <laughs> no, it's not possible. John's at all. not willing to have any fun with this at <laughs> all. I mean, Deirdre, he just shut it down immediately. Just, no, I'm just yeah. saying
3: Brett Taylor's that not willing to have fair. any fun with that. Brett Taylor. <laughs> but, but, I, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen.
2: He might, he might be, yeah, so far away from that now and thankful to be. Uh, Frank Holland, thank you very much. Great discussion. Let's turn now to FTX. Sam Bankman-Fried covering a lot of ground at the New York Times Dealbook Summit. Massive risk management failures, commingled funds with Alameda Research, claiming he's down to $100,000 and one credit card. Have a listen.
0: I mean, look, I, I've had a bad month. There was no person who was chiefly in charge of... Positional Risk of Customers on FTX, this was a specific crash on assets associated with Alameda Research rather than all assets. I didn't ever uh, try to commit fraud on anyone. I I was excited about the prospects of FTX a month ago. I substantially underestimated what the scale of market crash could look like and what the speed of it could look like.
2: Here to help us break it all down, let's bring in Kate Rooney, who was watching with your popcorn, like all of us. (laughs) Um, I mean, a part of me can't help but feel like there's got to be some method in this madness here. He is just incriminating himself. He's talking... Too much. Obviously, you know, there's been a lot of discussion that he's going against everything. His lawyers are advising him. But is it possible here that he has some kind of new age crisis management team? Because the effect (laughs) of this is that he's painting himself um, as someone who's mismanaged, who is incompetent, when really it's malfeasance and misuse of
5: customer deposits at the core here. That was the theme. I think one of the takeaways that he tried to deflect any idea that this was malicious, this was premeditated. He knowingly commingled funds, and he tried to really blame it on sloppiness. And maybe immaturity and the idea that he was a new CEO, he was distracted. There was so much else going on. He talked a lot about some of the regrets. But you're right, it does seem strategic in the way that he is trying to avoid culpability in the idea that this, he had intent to defraud investors, which I think Andrew did a great job of mm-hmm. trying to hold him to that. But I don't know that we got that answer in a straight way from him.
6: Kate,
3: this is very different from the Sam Bankman fried that we saw in those direct messages with The Verge. It's very different from the Sam Bankman fried that we heard from when he was speaking so confidently about uh, how, how his businesses were structured. So you, you've spoken to him before. Th- does this sound genuinely like the narrative follows through from what he believed before and what he's saying now?
5: That Vox conversation was really eye-opening, John, because his public persona and what he had said to us on the record
3: uh,
5: consistently really aligned with how he was approaching the interview with Andrew and the idea that he didn't know some of this was going on. We asked him directly about Alameda and FTX at the time. He sort of avoided that question. And even when Andrew asked him directly about that, he said he didn't know or he didn't realize how big their margin position was. And he really was. The CEO, as the new CEO put it, it was a fiefdom, he said, and really he was the one controlling it. He should have known this in hindsight. The Vox conversation opened up a new window into how he thought about some of these things. And Andrew asked him about um, effective altruism and some of the virtue signaling that he admitted to, and he called it sort of corporate BS that he had to play along with. I don't know that we, Andrew or any of us, would have even known to ask the question or question the effective altruism thing if it were not for those mm-hmm. conversations with someone who he said he thought was a friend and didn't realize that was being published i think that's really the only window we've gotten into how he probably realistically thinks about this
2: which seems to underline this idea that quite simply SBF is a con man i mean even those comments about how he's down to what a hundred thousand dollars yeah He cashed out three hundred million dollars from last year's VC raise. Um, He took out a billion dollar loan from Alameda Research. Just you can't believe anything he says here.
5: That was what Novogratz made a great point, Mike Novogratz, on uh, Squawk Box earlier. The idea that at some point he will be prosecuted, and he's out there on this media tour. He's been really trying to make excuses for a lot of what happened here. But he said at, at the end of the day, there will be prosecution, and. Andrew asked him at the end, are you lying or did you lie in this interview? And he said, I was as truthful as I am knowledgeable to be, and I don't know of times when I lied. So he's still really tap dancing around that. And I think that's still one of the big questions here. Did he know and was he lying in some of his answers there?
2: Well, what he's essentially doing is providing prosecutors a lot of material. Um, More to come, I'm sure, in the coming days and weeks. Hey, Rooney, thanks so much.
3: Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, Elon Musk, not the only one taking some issue with Apple's App Store, Mark Zuckerberg, also spoke critically of Apple's policies at The New York Times Deal Book Summit, saying, quote, Apple has sort of singled themselves out as the only company that is trying to control unilaterally what apps get on a device. I don't think that's a sustainable or a good place to be. Those comments come after Meta's ad business has taken a huge hit this year thanks to Apple's updated privacy changes. Zuckerberg also addressed a range of issues from metaverse skeptics to TikTok competition at the summit. Sounds like he needs to take a walk with Tim Cook. Our Julia Borston <laughs> joins us now to break it all down. Julia?
7: Um, I I love the walk with Tim Cook reference. John, I mean, I think what's most interesting here from an investing standpoint is the signaling that Mark Zuckerberg did that they are not going to be overspending on the the metaverse and that they are focused on what is still their bread and butter, which is social media and the ad business. I just want to point out a quote that Zuckerberg said. He said over the long term, they're pushing the same direction, namely into the metaverse. But over the next few years, it is going to be efficiency and discipline and rigor and operating in a much environment. So acknowledging they're not going to be overspending, they are going to be disciplined there. So I think that's the key thing. And also trying to reassure that over the next three to five years, not just over the next 10 years, they will be seeing notable improvements in that metaverse technology to make it more appealing to consumers. So John, I'm curious what you thought of that. Um, I know you are a metaverse skeptic. Is this a pivot or is this just near-term reassurance?
3: I say, show me the money, Julia. They're spending tens of billions of dollars. They just said to investors they're going to spend tens of billions of dollars on the metaverse in the near term. So saying they're going to be disciplined, I don't know. D, I don't know how you do that.
2: I mean, he can say all of these things, Julia, but do we buy it? He's got to put his money where his mouth is or take his money away from where his mouth is. He says he's social media first. He named the company Meta. And as John said, he's spending tens of billion dollars. How much stock should we put into this is just this sort of to make nice with investors?
7: Well, I think it is It is definitely signaling to investors and also noting the major layoffs that they have done. Um, so I think that is putting his money where his mouth is. But I think the other thing that was interesting is he talked about the success of Reels. Of course, Reels is the short form video format that competes with TikTok. He said it's doing better than it may seem like it's doing, like they are making progress there. And then, of course, he did um, very carefully raise some concerns about TikTok's Chinese ownership. Um, not quite saying mm-hmm. that TikTok shares its data with the Chinese government, but indicating that some companies that are based in other countries, they do share their data with mm-hmm. their, uh, their parent companies in the government. So it was really interesting to hear from Zuckerberg about this, then to hear from TikTok CEO um, talking about how they are mitigating those concerns. But there's no doubt that TikTok has been a major force, yeah. um, a competitive force that has challenged uh, Meta and Mark Zuckerberg in a way that he never could have anticipated a couple of years ago.
2: Yeah, and, and tricky balance there, too, because he almost needs TikTok as a competitor to allay some of those antitrust concerns. So Julia Borston, great rundown. Thank you. Up next, Cloud Week continues on Tech Check, The CEOs of Microsoft, Azure, VMware, and Pure Storage, they're all with us. We're back in two. Welcome back. Let's get a check on Snowflake. The stock reversing early losses after a top and bottom line beat in Q3. The initial drop due to a product, due to, excuse me, product revenue guidance that came in light. CEO Frank Slootman joined Mad Money last night and he addressed the soft outlook.
3: The guidance is the guidance. And, uh, you know, uh, you'll just have to wait
9: and see how it plays out. We think these numbers are are formidable uh, in, in, in any reasonable context, obviously, you know, the, the sentiment in the market is a little stressed out and you know, people react very strongly. And it's, that's understood. But, you know, we live in the real world and, uh, you know, we just go, you know, one day at a time, one, one quarter at a time.
2: Company's revenue was up 67 percent year over year, but that growth was lower than the 83 percent increase last quarter. Shares are down more than 55 percent in 2022. John, the guidance is the guidance.
3: Yeah, and the stock is up today in the trade so far. Let's turn now to one of the biggest names in the cloud, and that is Microsoft. Azure, its cloud platform has been a potent force, but last quarter saw lower than expected revenue growth. CFO Amy Hood pointing to moderating consumption, higher energy costs, hitting Azure's bottom line, All the while, Microsoft faces stiff competition from AWS and Google Cloud, regulatory scrutiny over its pending deal for Activision Blizzard. Joining us now, Microsoft Executive Vice President of the Cloud and AI, uh, Scott Guthrie. Scott, great to have you. I want to start on this kind of consumption trend that we see, and I keep hearing from executives, leaders in uh, enterprise software, customers wanna break down their needs into the smallest possible components and spread them over time and pay as they go even more than before. Are you seeing that and how does it affect your plans?
9: Well, first off, John, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's, it's great to be here this week. Uh, you know, I think to your point there, you know, customers are looking to optimize their IT. And you know, we think with the Microsoft Cloud, uh, we're really helping them do that. You know, you know, we saw strong growth, continue to see strong growth with the Microsoft Cloud. Uh, last quarter, we grew Azure 42% year-over-year year in constant currency. And to your point, that's driven by customer usage of our consumptive-based services.
3: So break down for me also what you're seeing in small and medium-sized customers. We we just saw that Snowflake saw some weakness there for what it sells. At the same time, though, we just talked to Sasan Ghadarzi from Intuit yesterday. Uh, They specialize in small and medium business. For the back office tools, those sort of uh, revenue-driving and business-running cloud tools that they have, they continue to see strength. What are those smaller customers really using and finding essential during this? period?
9: Well, I think, you know, there's obviously going to be some economic uncertainty in 2023, but, you know, every organization needs to find ways to drive productivity amongst their employees and continue to transform their businesses while at the same time cutting costs. Uh, And, you know, part of what we're trying to do with the Microsoft Cloud through the breadth and depth of what we offer is is help them do that. Uh, You know, we're in lots of different categories, uh, both SaaS and consumptive-based And we make it really easy for them to to use those separately in individual components, but also combine them together uh, to be able to optimize end-to-end processes. And at the end of the day, use the cloud as really a a lever they can pull uh, to optimize around uh, their productivity and, and drive their transformation.
2: Hey, Scott, good morning, it's Deirdre. Um, Are there other ways in which you can help them, such as eat costs yourself? Earlier this week, we heard from the AWS chief, Adam Solipsky, who said that he's trying to keep costs down for his customers by doing things like eating the higher energy prices. Are you doing the same, and how might that weigh on margins going forward?
9: Well, certainly we're we're optimized around, uh, you know, at scale. And so, you know, take energy prices in Europe, uh, you know, at our scale, we're able to make sure that we have the right supply chain, we have the right long-term energy contracts, and, and we're very focused on how do we make sure our customers are successful. And I think we can help them navigate higher fuel prices uh, and energy costs inside Europe, um, you know, through our cloud and, and through the scale at which we're able to provide it. So that's something that I think is a real value prop for customers. Uh, then the other thing I think we're really focused on is, is you know, how do we, again, enable them to get outcomes faster with more certainty? Uh, and part of, again, the breadth and depth of what we offer really enables them to have more confidence that they can uh, you know, add a security solution, which is going to be top of mind, or right. drive a business outcome faster.
3: And how much of that, Scott, means that you've got to roll out more industry-specific purpose-specific apps on top of the platform that you're offering to customers. Earlier this week, we saw AWS roll out some new data management tools, some uh, supply uh, chain-focused services built on top of their platform. What are your goals, industry-specific and task-specific during a time when customers want that shorter time to value?
9: Yeah, over the last two years, we've been focused on what we call the Microsoft Cloud for Industry. And that's both offerings that we provide, but then also importantly, how do we bring in partners and other software vendors uh, within those industries and and compose them and integrate them with the Microsoft Cloud? And we've seen this as a real uh, differentiator for us and has allowed us, for example, in retail, to go to retail, not just with a horizontal cloud, but with a whole bunch of of existing solutions optimized for retail that they can take advantage of immediately. And so I think you're going to continue to see us drive that forward, both with our own first party products. And so, for example, Nuance was mm-hmm. an acquisition we closed earlier this year that's particularly strong in healthcare um, and used also in the back end of many other companies. Uh, but yeah. then again, also with partners. Well, th- th-
3: finally, tell me. What your plan is during this period, are you accelerating uh, custom semiconductor development for the cloud? Are you leaning into that? Uh, Again, talking to Solipsky earlier this week, he was saying that the custom silicon allows them to really help customers on costs for really specific workloads. And I know that you've made some announcements on your plans uh, for that as well. How is that going to progress and how much are you leaning into that over the next year?
9: We're continuing to lean in, both in terms of whether it's hardware, silicon, um, network fiber. You know, there's a lot of optimizations that, at our scale, we're able to now uh, introduce and invest in that really provide customer value. Uh, and so, for example, uh, in September we launched our ARM-based VM offerings uh, uh, on Azure, uh, and so they're now generally available for customers to use. And again, that allows them to, to take advantage of better power savings, better. Uh, performance cost curves, uh, and again, realize real economic value and and lower their IT costs. And you're going to continue to see us invest heavily in in hardware and silicon with our cloud going forward.
3: All right. We will continue to watch that. Scott Guthrie, cloud and AI chief at Microsoft. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me.
2: And Cloudway continues after the break. The CEO of VMware is with us. The stock of rare outperformer positive on the year. Plus, take a look at Okta, the identity management software company, issuing upbeat revenue guidance for its full fiscal year. Read more about the quarter on CNBC.com. We are back in just a moment.
5: Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click, 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 click. Writers block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.
0: Check, check, everyone. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's what's happening right now. U.S. manufacturing activity in November contracted for the first time in two and a half years. That's according to the Institute for Supply Management. The good news on inflation. Factories paid less for raw materials for the second straight month. Hurricane Ian and other natural disasters have caused about $115 billion in insured losses so far this year, according to insurance company Swiss Re. That's well above the 10-year average of about $81 billion. Shares of Costco are down about 6%. The warehouse retailer reported a more than 10% slump in e-commerce sales for November. Online sales have been a bright spot for Costco during the pandemic. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says she practiced her signature repeatedly for use on new U.S. currency to be put in circulation next year. Printing is set to begin next week. Yellen is, of course, the first woman to serve as Treasury Secretary, and she told CBS host Stephen Colbert she wants to avoid the fate of predecessors Tim Geithner and Jack Lew, whose signatures on bills were widely considered to be illegible. We wouldn't want that. John.
3: Yeah, she could always go the Bob Dylan route, though. But, which, which is? <laughs> to not actually sign it yourself. But well, we don't want that either. <laughs> All right, Contessa, thank you. Turning now to cost cuts and layoffs in tech. DoorDash, the latest company to slash its headcount. Christina Parts has more on companies tightening their belts. Christina.
10: Well, what we've seen is tech layoffs have literally more than doubled from just October to November. So that's one month, which makes us wonder, could it be an indicator for what's to come in the labor market? Well, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs say, nope. Info tech companies account for 26% of the S&P 500 market cap, but the tech labor footprint is less than 9%. I use that 9% number loosely. There's even lower numbers of the total employment and not large enough to cause a meaningful slowdown. So as Janet Yellen put it just yesterday in the, uh, at the New York Times Deal Book, tech has faced some out of the ordinary factors.
7: hit. Um, in a slowing economy, declining ad revenue. And then, of course, they um, benefited massively from the boom in technology during the pandemic.
10: And what's left now are leaner companies. Bernstein analysts, for example, found Uber has seen the greatest growth in employee productivity over the past three years because it cut jobs early and increased prices, while Snap, which is down, what, 77 percent year to date, managed to grow its revenue per employee year over year in Q3 after announcing a 20 percent headcount cut back in August. And then you compare that to Meta, which doubled its headcount from the end of 2019 uh, to Q3 of this year. Now it's cutting staff after posting its first ever year-over-year revenue decline in the second quarter of 2022, demonstrating that growth, like you mentioned at all costs, will no longer cut it today.
3: Yeah, what concerns me here, so DoorDash in 2021 more than doubled its workforce from uh, Mm – I forget exactly what the numbers are, a little under 4,000 to more than 8,000. Now they're cutting about 15%, which is nice, but they're still a lot bigger. And I guess the signal is they feel like they need to be a lot bigger. They're still growing. But we've got this move to consumption-based pricing, companies being concerned about how much growth there is going to be in 23. I really wonder, could there be more cuts if Q4 doesn't turn out to be as nice as many hope and not just in tech?
10: Well, two points. One, the first is DoorDash. A lot of the tech companies, Janet Yellen said yesterday, Andy Jassy from Amazon saying that they don't regret hiring because there was such a boom during the pandemic. So that'll be the argument for many of these companies like Meta. But to the second point, if Twitter is successful, they're cutting, what, 50% of the workforce. If they successfully come out of this, doesn't that show the inefficiencies maybe across the board for tech labor and maybe more uh, job cuts to come? Because if they can do it, why shouldn't everyone else?
3: Perhaps. Um, and they've got that billion dollar debt bill to pay, which which helps the cause for, for wanting to cut. Christina, thank you. Thanks. Uh, let's Dive back into our cloud week coverage, no surprise, the software sector has taken a big hit this year. Shares of VMware are holding on to gains up more than 4% on the year, 7% for the month after shareholders approved its $61 billion takeover uh, from Chip giant Broadcom. Joining us now for more on the company's multi cloud strategy, VMware CEO Raghu Ragaram. Uh, welcome, Raghu. So tell me how you're seeing customer demand shift. We're talking more about uh, moves toward consumption based models. How's VMware weathering that?
11: Yeah, so this has been something that uh, we've been uh, um, Uh, doing or seeing our customers do for the last uh, couple of years and we are well underway in VMware's own shift in our business model from largely a license-based business model to something that's uh, today a combination of license and consumption, increasingly more and more consumption and subscription going forward. And so we've been uh, navigating the change very carefully and uh, uh, we've been doing it uh, in a constructive fashion uh, overall, I would say customers continue to spend on what they see as the high priorities for them with, of course, the modernization of uh, their businesses, turning them into more digital businesses, uh, investing in cloud, investing in um, new application build out, security, so on and so forth, areas that we have traditionally served them very well on. Mm-hmm.
2: Ragu, talk um, broadly about the multi-cloud model? Because in a softer economic background, it may seem almost counterintuitive to some. So walk our audience through the trade-offs and the benefits of going this route.
11: Yeah. So um, like you said, it's, it might be counterintuitive to some. Here's what we see in, the, in our customer base. Roughly 75% of our customers are using two public clouds and they're using their traditional data centers and building uh, private clouds. And they're also modernizing the edge if they're in manufacturing and certain other industries. The reason they're doing it is exactly what you said, which is companies need to find the right place to put the right application, uh, right business applications, so that they can optimally adjust their span At the same time, deliver the business services in the best manner possible. So they've got all these choices, and so they're trying to maximize, spend their money on these choices in a wise way so that they maximize their own business output. What that leads to on the side effect, of course, is that now you've got your IT infrastructure and IT applications spread out over a couple of different clouds and on-premise, and so now that becomes the multi-cloud complexity, and they turn to us, and companies like us to solve this multi-cloud complexity. That's what we see. We actually call this phenomenon being cloud smart. It used to be companies said cloud first. Now they're saying cloud smart, which is let's use all of these uh, various uh, 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 clouds for what they are best at.
2: So customers at the same time, Raghu, need to be confident that the cost of managing multi-cloud isn't going to move higher, but that is a concern that we've heard over the last few months since Broadcom's planned acquisition of VMware. I know you can't talk too much about it, but Hawk Tan, the CEO of Broadcom, has been quite public. I wonder if you can respond to what he said in terms of not rising costs. Are you confident that costs won't become higher for a lot of your customers after this acquisition if it does go through?
11: Yeah, I mean, you heard it from Hawk uh, Tan himself, and uh, Uh, he published blogs to this effect saying he sees nothing fundamentally wrong with the VMware's pricing and uh, therefore he doesn't see a need to change prices. But going back to your cloud comment, Uh, The point that you raise is cloud costs are going up for customers. That is totally true. One of our best-selling offerings is an offering that enables customers to optimize their cloud spend, regardless of which cloud they are in. And we see what you're talking about all the time with customers because they've initially in the rush to go to the cloud, they did not optimize what they had to do. Now we are helping them optimize it.
2: Right. Um, So on the question of increasing profitability, cutting costs, where do you guys have room to do that? Where are you in terms of hiring next year?
11: Yeah, so we've been fairly prudent in our hiring even this year. I would say starting, I would say about roughly second quarter of this year, we started slowing down our hiring. We still do hiring in a very judicious fashion, but we we did slow down our hiring and so we are uh, on a trajectory that we feel comfortable about going into next year.
2: Raggy, thanks so much for being with us today. We appreciate it. Talk to you again soon. Thank you
3: so much. And meanwhile at CNBC, a big week of Pro Talks continues this afternoon. Today, a new way to trade with the pros. It's real trades, real access, and real money on the line. Join us at 3 p.m. Eastern for a new CNBC experience called The Tick. CNBC.com slash Pro Talks live at 3 p.m. We are back in two.
2: Welcome back. As you saw, the NASDAQ turning positive. The Senate AG committee holding a hearing on the FTX collapse with the CFTC chairman testifying. CNBC's senior congressional correspondent, Elon Moy, has been monitoring that and has the highlights. Elon.
8: Well, Deirdre, there is new urgency from both lawmakers and from regulators to write new rules to protect customers, as well as to find out what happened inside of FTX. They want to make sure that there are protections for consumers, as well as new rules for digital assets. CFTC Chairman Rostin Benham said that his agency currently lacks the authority to police bad actors before they strike. He said that's why legislation is needed from Congress to give him authority over at the spot market For digital assets, particularly to give him a window into what happened into FTX. He also defended his own meetings and interactions with Sam Bankman-Fried. He said that he met with Bankman-Fried 10 times over the past 14 months, but that all of those discussions were around uh, FTX's application to function as a clearinghouse. Now, there has been bipartisan legislation from the Senate Ag Committee uh, that they say would have prevented FTX from occurring, but certainly there are legislation and proposals from several corners of Congress, including from Republicans and Democrats in both chambers, the House and the Senate. It is unclear which one is going to get traction. Uh, but Benham did say that this is not a power grab by the FTC, uh, by the CFTC in order to gain uh, authority over the spot market for commodities. He said this is a way to fill gaps, protect consumers and prevent another FTX from happening again. Guys,
3: Elon, thank you. And we are going to check back in with Washington in just a bit again. In a few minutes, President Biden hosting a joint press conference with French President Emmanuel Macron. R.K. LaTosche will monitor and bring us any highlights. Tech Check is back after this.
7: Let's get a gut check on Sirius XM. It's one of the rare stocks in the red today. It's down about 0.7% on a double downgrade from Citi, taking the stock from a buy rating to a sell rating. Analyst Jason is saying once Liberty, which owns a majority stake in Sirius XM, creates Liberty Live Nation next year, they expect Sirius's share count to decline and leverage to increase, prompting city to drop its target price from $7 to $6 for the stock. Now, in parallel, they believe that share exchange, if it does happen, then shares of Sirius XM common stock value increases. Bazinet say said it remains his favorite stock within the coverage universe. You see Liberty Media LSXMA, those shares are also down 0.9% today. Tech Check will be back in just a minute.
3: Piers of Pure Storage are higher after posting a better than expected quarter. company also issuing upbeat guidance, especially when compared to peers like Dell and NetApp, saying on the earnings call the company's core strategy is what's going to lead them to take market share from the competition. Pure Storage Chairman and CEO Charles Giancarlo joins us now to discuss, Charlie, good to see you. So, I Good mean, to see you, John. Uh, unusual how you're talking about even leaning into sales and marketing in a very targeted way during this period, why are you doing it and to what kind of customer?
4: Well, quite frankly, we are, we're a market share taker in this uh, $50 billion market. Uh, yeah, we're still a relatively small player, but the newest on the block with, uh, frankly, the, the best technology. Uh, and we provide a lot of benefits uh, to customers, including lower operating costs, uh, lower lower energy utilization, uh, better footprint, and better performance uh, at the end of the day. So, which customers? You know, we're we're increasingly selling uh, into large enterprise. Uh, you know, across the board, not just their primary storage, which has been the traditional area for. Ah, uh, for flash storage, but now increasingly into uh, their uh, hard disk estate, uh, the the what's called the second tier uh, hard disk area now becoming uh, very much open to the uh, the economics and the better performance of flash technology. So it's a sure. very exciting time for us.
3: So zeroing in on what you just said about operating costs and energy utilization, we're talking with uh, AWS CEO uh, Adam Solipsky earlier this week, just now to Scott Guthrie from Microsoft about how they as hyperscalers are eating some of that cost for their customers. Are you in effect selling to the providers so that they can lower their operating costs and increase margin over time?
4: Well this is the opportunity. And in fact just this past quarter there are have, we have seen numerous customers especially in Europe choose us specifically because we reduce their overall power uh requirements. Uh you know up to uh up to 10x when they replace hard disk with flash. 10x uh, so one tenth the space power and cooling of hard disk alternatives. And of course 80% of the bits that are out there uh, the data bits that are out there, especially in the hyperscalers, are still hard disk based. And so, again, the economics and now the energy footprint of flash is just uh, too good to ignore.
2: Um, is there an opportunity for M&A or do you plan to do so organically?
4: you know, we're we're blessed with lots of organic opportunities. So uh, the majority of, I think, our growth is going to be based on organic uh, investment. That being said, there are uh, key bits of technology that are outside in the world uh, that we would like to take advantage of. So, you know, some, there's some opportunity for, I, I think, mostly smaller uh, uh, tuck-in type acquisitions for us.
3: Charlie, how much Um, headcount shift geographically do you expect to see during this period and coming out of it? I believe you said on the call that you're going to be hiring more net overseas in part because of the the cost value that you see in talent there. And I just wonder, as so many companies are starting to cut domestic workforces, does the high cost uh, of talent here actually get reflected in where talent gets hired in an upswing?
4: Well, we we're blessed with great talent uh, here in in the U.S. as well as worldwide. Now, we started from a a, uh, just a few years ago having 100% of our R&D talent uh, here on the West Coast, and that's just not, (coughs) excuse me, a competitive framework uh, in the high-tech world. So, our growth has largely been overseas, but we're getting to a much better balance uh, but still uh, the focus be- on overseas hiring and once we get to a good competitive balance we'll continue growing you know in both locations that being said the reason why we're still growing in r d but also uh in sales is because we're growing as a company even in this environment as, as i said we operate in a very large market we're still a relatively small player and we have a lot of growth ahead of us
3: That said, you said, I believe, that you just have a couple quarters visibility into demand after this one. What do you see as the most important signposts, uh, data points that you'll be looking at, indicating to you how things are gonna fare toward the back half of calendar 23?
4: Yeah, well, um, you know, we're we're at the we're we're in the final uh, uh, innings of, of 22, and we're in the our uh, the middle of our planning for next year. Clearly, we're going to want to be uh, agile as we go into that year uh, because it's a little bit difficult to predict what the second half of, of 23 will look like. So we're gonna uh, while we're gonna bring on some headcount, we're gonna stay very agile. We're very um, focused on making sure that uh, we drive good operational discipline. In our organization, I want to improve uh, the metrics that we have, whether it's in sales and marketing and operating costs or R&D productivity, Uh, and we want to keep up flexibility. So our plan is to uh, continue to be operationally disciplined, but also to invest in our growth.
3: All right, Charlie Giancarlo, CEO of Pure Storage, that stock up 2.5% after earnings. Thanks for being with us for Cloud Week. Well, thank you. Take care.
2: And if you missed any part of the show or any of Cloud Week, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast to listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing, Elon Musk squashing his Twitter beef with Apple, for now at least, posting that he met with Tim Cook and got a tour of Apple HQ those threats about the app store barring Twitter, just a misunderstanding, according to Musk, who says that Cook confirmed Apple never considered the platform's removal. John, I don't know where we go from here, though, because Musk was complaining about the 15, 30 percent take that Apple would be taking. And if he wants to create the everything app, that's going to be a big chunk of revenue that he very much needs going forward.
3: Is it a big chunk, though? I mean, I don't know, but is it a Twitter beef if it's only one-sided? As, as far as I can tell, Tim Cook managed to squash this whole thing without tweeting a single thing. He just <laughs> he took him for a walk. Isn't not isn't, wouldn't it be nice if we could solve all of our problems that way? Everybody just, just go for a walk.
2: Just go for a walk. That works around a nice pond in Cupertino. Um, at the same time, though, it was reported that he was. this was before he was going to Washington, so perhaps pressure on a little bit for him to quash this
3: perhaps. And uh, as we head toward noon, do want to note, we've got a lot of earnings to watch after the Bell cloud-related Marvell, which sells a lot of chips into the cloud, PagerDuty, Zscaler, and Asana among them. We're going to be tracking all of those. For now, that does it for Tech Check. Let's get to the judge and the half.
2: You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.